what John Stuart Mill is asking us to do is to think about history simultaneously in two different ways. One, which is really relative, different national histories are kind of like really different from each other. But at the same time, so not instead, it's not one or the other, at the same time to bear in mind a more universal story of history. Welcome to another instalment of New Work in Intellectual History, a podcast produced by the Institute of Intellectual History at the University of St Andrews, and I'm your host for this episode, Robin Mills. You can follow us on Twitter at St Andrews IIH, and the Institute's website is intellectualhistory.net. I've been talking to my colleagues, and if you are an author with a book coming out soon, you would like to be interviewed on this podcast, please DM us at the Twitter handle, and uh, we'll get back to you and see if we can work something out. But this week, or this episode rather, we are talking with Dr. Callum Burrell. Hello, Callum, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you for having me on. Brilliant. Now, Dr. Burrell is Associate Professor of Political Thought at Northeastern University, London, and we're here to discuss his recent book, History and Historiography in Classical Utilitarianism, 1800 to 1865, which was published as part of Cambridge University Press's Ideas in Context series, which came out towards the end of uh, 2021. Um, yeah, so October 2021. Let's uh, maybe it might make sense first of all to introduce maybe to our listeners who are familiar but might need a little bit more more detail what we understand utilitarianism to be or who are you focusing on and why are you focusing on these authors in particular. So the book, I say specifying the book's title that this is about classical utilitarianism. So what I wanted to get away from was talking about because utilitarianism is still this really alive intellectual moral tradition over which academics and policymakers continue to fight. So I wanted to just make things a bit more manageable for myself. So the people I'm concerned with are, yeah, the the sort of intellectual bedrocks of that tradition. So Jeremy Bentham um, towards the end of the 18th century and into the 19th, uh, James Mill, his son, John Stuart Mill, very famous in his own right, and a historian and philosopher called George Grote. So really I'm starting the story at the end of the 18th century and going through to the middle of the 19th. Um, as to what utilitarianism is and its most fundamental, um, the good thing is that it is really pithy. Um, Bentham expresses it as, well, really, we are placed under these sovereign masters, he says, pain and pleasure. So everything we do when we're thinking about moral actions or political actions, we're doing this because we are motivated by, at the very least, the avoidance of pain or um, the pursuit of pleasure. So when it comes to thinking about political questions, moral questions, really we're talking about maximizing the amount of pleasure in a given community. So hence this famous phrase, the greatest happiness of the greatest number. And from that really slender, you know, sort of slinky um, premise, we can deduce quite a lot of things. So that's utilitarianism at its most fundamental, but obviously there's um, yeah, loads to it than that. Okay, so, so this, this book is primarily about the political thought, sorry, the historical thought of your, your cast of four characters, shall we say, and you're responding to the characterization of these classical utilitarians as developing 
purely abstract moral and political theory, right? That you have your utility, your um, utilitarian calculus there, and from that starting point, you can build up political theory. And to some extent, history is irrelevant to that, um, to developing that sort of philosophy. They were all accused, quoting you now, of reasoning in a historical vacuum. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the accusation of sort of ignorance of history was and why you think it was worth challenging? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so I suppose maybe one easy way into this, if you ever do a political philosophy class um, or even just a philosophy class and you're introduced to the utilitarians, it might be Jeremy Bentham, it's more likely to be John Stuart Mill. He's arguably the most famous out of the lot. And if you do that course, your history of philosophy course, your history of political philosophy uh, course, you'll probably do two texts of his. Uh, one is his really famous essay on liberty from 1859. And then if you're really lucky, you might get to do his essay on utilitarianism from a couple of years later. Um, if you're really, really wild, you might look at a couple of other texts from around that period, but the rest of his writings basically fall away. Um, so one, one part of this really is just that um, it's part, part, partly the problems with, with canons, um, the texts that we select to represent a particular thinker's thought. Um, whereas, of course, John Stuart Mill wrote more serious philosophical works that I'm interested in. So partly this, this reputation that you uh, bring up, this idea that they didn't really care about history. They just wanted to prove, as I said earlier, that we are motivated by um, the pursuit of pleasure uh, the avoidance of pain. So again, that greatest happiness principle. And once you've proved that, if you can establish that psychologically or a priori, then history doesn't really matter because this is going to be true in any context whatsoever. Um, so yes, there's one thing, yeah, that this repetition comes about partly because of the texts we choose to read. Um, but also something that I try to say in the book is that, um, that there are good reasons for being suspicious of them as historians or for thinking that they weren't as into history as perhaps sometimes I claim that they, they were. Um, and if you sort of just superficially go through some of their writings, there are some pretty choice sentences in there. I mean, Bentham, for example, uh, really lays into people who think that just by pointing out the origins of something, you can justify it. So if you can find out why a particular institution or behavior custom um, emerged, then this house you know, justifies its existence. So he, he has all sorts of terms for these people. He calls them sort of ancestor worshippers, no-gooders. He's, he's quite pejorative about people who uh, rely on history as a way of doing philosophy, as a way of doing politics. Um, and that rhetoric is really strong. And it's strong because he, Bentham and, and the other thinkers I'm concerned with are politically radical. So their first line of attack is to say that just because something exists, we cannot automatically assume that it's good. And my task in the book is to show that that's really... It's, that's true. Doing history isn't the same thing as doing philosophy. They're separate tasks. But I'm just trying to show that they did think with more historical finesse about institutions, customs, how things change um, over time. So, yeah, just there is, I think, good reason for seeing them as reasoning in historical vacuum. I understand where that comes from. Um, and perhaps this is something we can talk about later, but I also argue in, the, in the, really the first third of the book that this reputation, them as just being a priori abstract thinkers, right? You've got your premise, human beings, you've got the abiding, um, the, the abiding governance of pleasure and pain. And this kind of allows you to um, determine morality and politics, right? Um, but I try to show that this reputation really got going in the 1810s and 1820s when there was a huge um, battle um, in the UK for domestic political reform. And it was in that context 
the debate uh, and battle for reform uh, in which they got this reputation as, as thinking abstractly. So one of the sort of the common themes in the book is that the accusation of historic, willful historical ignorance and reliance on pure abstract reasoning in adopting that in current scholarship and adopting that position, we have largely adopted the views of the utilitarians' contemporary critics. That we've, you know, we've we've read the criticisms of uh, at the time and have just sort of parroted those back. Could you tell us a little bit, perhaps, about the bit more about that uh, debate you just mentioned and who the critics are and why? Yeah, the various sort of contours and triangulations of that uh, of that debate. Yeah. So, in a more so again, I think the key decade here is maybe from 1817, maybe from 1817 onwards through into the 1820s and early 1830s. That's when this debate gets set. So who are we talking about? It's, it's a range of people. So if you think about the utilitarians as being on one side for arguments, you know, arguments sake, who's on the other side? Well, it's a whole range of people from uh, Whig thinkers. So um, people like uh, Macaulay, people like James Mackintosh, romantic thinkers, people like Hazlitt, um, who argue that essentially the utilitarian's idea for reform is just, part, you know, it's, it's blue sky stuff. Um, it's utopian thinking. And of course, by raising the spectre of utopian thinking, you're raising the spectre of the French Revolution. So really what's going on in the background here is a debate over the ideological significance of the past. So in order to understand what's going on in that period, you really have to begin to look at what was going on in the 1790s and at reactions in England to that French revolutionary project the idea that you could build society on these abstract principles. Um, so that's really the, yeah, the, the intellectual germination of this. But you also raise this other point, which, is, which I'm interested in, which is well, what happens afterwards? And Bentham dies in 1832, James Mill in 1836. But this line of criticism that they are thinking abstractly without any care really for historical variation continues well into the late 19th century. People like Leslie Stephen, and it's picked up in the early 20th century too. Um, so this is something that has a you know, it's a really, really long, um, pretty much unbroken line of criticism that goes from the 1810s, the 1820s, all the way through to the mid 20th century. Um, and that's where I try to make my interventions. So the turning point is, I, I may be remembering this incorrectly, but I got the sense that it was Grote and Mill who were the two authors who were really responding to the accusations thrown at Bentham, sorry, John Stuart Mill, uh, thrown at the accusations at Bentham and James Mill, that they were uh, not engaging with history sufficiently or at all. And that prompted a response by uh, uh, John Stuart and by Grote. Is it, that, is it that sort of division or are they all interested in historical study of history, the use of history for politics, are they all interested in the same, to the same extent? That's yes, a good question. Um, I don't think they are all interested to the same extent. So one of the reasons why I structured the book, Thinker by Thinker, in a different life, this book would have been, you know, I always imagined it being much more slender and neat and, you know, maybe not divided <laughs> Thinker by Thinker, but obviously it became this sort of slightly unwieldy thing. But the reason why I divide it Thinker by Thinker is because they had slightly different interests um, and they shaped their arguments differently. Um, and, and perhaps things don't divide quite as you'd expect. So it, because Grote and John Stuart Mill are younger, they grew up um, politically in the context of these debates that I've been sketching out. So when they are agitating for political reform in the late 1820s, early 1830s, they're dealing with some of the criticisms that were leveled at Bentham and James Mill. 
And I would argue, and this is just my yeah, sort of personal take on it, uh, but Bentham, by this point, he remained largely aloof from these debates. So when he allows other people to do his talking for him, basically, um, James Mill does it and he publishes um, right up until his death, a series of um, dialogues and articles defending the methodology of utilitarianism. And that's important. He's not just defending the politics they're striving for. So the typical radical sort of suite of things, right? Shorter parliaments, wider franchises, all of these things. He's defending their methodology. And John Stuart Mill and George Grote grow up in this environment. George Grote goes on to represent um, the radical cause in parliament. So there is this generational divide. So Grote and Mill are exposed to these lines of attack and they have to respond to them. John Stuart Mill does this, I think, even more than Grote. But it's quite difficult to divide them in that way because as I argue in the book, what, what surprised me in researching it, I thought, okay, there's gonna be a clear generational divide here. You're gonna have um, James Mill and, and Jeremy Bentham, both of whom could be quite um, staunch, quite severe. Um, they were double downers. Uh, when faced with criticism, they would double down. And if you read James Mill's commonplace books, some of his annotations and notes, he can be quite rude about people who haven't, well, who haven't got his argument right as he sees it. Uh, and Bentham could be quite uh, pejorative as we heard earlier. But then when I really began to think about this, what's quite surprising is that George Grote, who's a bit older than John Stuart Mill, but they're, they're more or less the same age. And as I said, growing up in a intellectually in a similar context, George Grote is much closer to Bentham. And John Stuart Mill, I think, is much closer to his father in the ways in which he thinks about the relationship between philosophy and history or, or politics and history. So it's quite messy. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right that George Grote's and John Stuart Mill's task in a way is to respond to some of these criticisms that I highlight at the beginning of the book. In other words, they're thinking, right, well, we've got this quite uh, significant line of attack, which is to say that the utilitarians don't care about history. All they really care about is psychology, proving that we are governed by the sovereign masters of pain and pleasure. How can we then prove that this is not the case? They do this in different ways, but I do think that becomes a lasting question um, for both of them. Okay, let's dive in a little bit then to, I suppose, the wider climate of historical writing, historical thinking that the classical utilitarians are participating or responding to. Let's start with what they don't like first. <laughs> They're being accused of um, you know, historical ignorance and so on. What, are they, what do they not like about the way history is being deployed for political purposes uh, in, uh, during the 19th century? Yeah. So, um... There's one thing they clearly really don't like. Um, so, for example, Jeremy Bentham, some of his most um, polemical interventions on this issue, uh, whether history is useful to politics and philosophy or not, uh, they, they occur when he's criticising William Blackstone, um, so who, who wrote um, a really significant series of books on jurisprudence in the mid-18th century. And all of the utilitarians agree unequivocally that the biggest mistake here, their, their intellectual enemy, as it were, in this context, are those people who think that by explaining the origins of laws, institutions, by looking at historical development, you, 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 know, you somehow arrive at a normative defense of those institutions, customs, or whatever. That by looking at history, we can somehow rationalize or normalize, justify the status quo. This is very much the, the, the thing that they're arguing against. Now, the, in another sense, they're also arguing, and this is what's kind of interesting, is that 
they're also arguing against this idea that so just by asking that question, right? Um, is this institution good for us? Well, let's look at its origins and its historical development. Just in the way in which you frame that question, this is a really presentist approach to the past. You're looking at a particular institution as it is now. You're looking at its development in order to see whether or not, you know, um, this institution should, should continue. That is the wrong way of looking at the past um, because it is so unashamedly presentist. So I think, yeah, there, there are two enemies there, right? One is these people who kind of conflate history and philosophy. So one becomes the other. To do philosophy becomes to look at, you know, is, is looking at history. And then second is this idea that we just project onto the past our present preconceptions, anxieties, and fears. And this is interesting because a lot of the, when I was first doing work on this so over a decade ago now, um, a lot of the literature says that, well, in this period, people are interested in the past because they are really, really concerned and anxious about the present. Well, this is something that all of these thinkers, these utilitarian thinkers confront and challenge. If you're going, if histories can have any value at all, and as I said, they sort of defer slightly or, or disagree slightly on just how important history it, uh, is. But if it's going to have any value at all, it has to be history as history, the past as the past, not the past as we might render it with our own present preconceptions and anxieties. So I think that's yeah pretty much enemy number one. The question gets more complicated then because different thinkers have slightly different bugbears, but I think that's a pretty good place to start. I'm just interested in, um, I think it's in the Bentham chapter where you do one of these kind of, you invert the criticism that Bentham is criticized for being uninterested in history, but his critiques of just, you know, uh, common law are based on what well, just developing a point that what you've just been explaining or building them on developing. Um, the common law, uh, if you go back to precedent, you are failing to see the humongous distance between past societies and the present. So if anything, Bentham is actually a more historically minded thinker because he is aware that the past is another country, but one pound in the cliche jar, but that, you know, that there is a huge difference between uh, the past and the present. And he's actually far more, in a way, he's more historically sensitive, please develop this idea, but he's more historically, historically sensitive than the people uh, he is criticizing. Yeah, it's a, really, it's a really good point. And there's something counterintuitive in this. I didn't want to push the point too far in the book because it's, I'm still, you know, it's quite a difficult thing to get your head around. But if, if you're going to say that, if you, if you take history seriously, then you must take the idea of difference seriously. To look at history is to look at, you know, how one society or one particular context differs from another and why. Bentham's really, really attuned to this. So one of the things I argue in the book, when he comes across these universalizing schemes or these transcendent political fictions, so things that we in political theory are used to talking about, uh, things like the social contract or natural law. Um, yeah, the, the, these, these kind of universal frameworks for thinking about political obligation and political development. He says, well, what, what on earth are they? You know, show me in the pages of history where you can see any of these things. So in some ways, his starting point is that, well, history, because it's so made up of difference, because societies are so different to each other, history on its own cannot be the basis of a sound moral or political philosophy. And, and what I argue in the book, as you, as you rightly say, is that this, in a really strange way, brings him much closer to late 18th century, early 19th century historicist thinkers uh, than you might expect because he is starting from this acknowledgement of historical difference. 
rather than from this, what he sees as a slightly more dubious position, which is that you can lift out of history X, Y, Z and use X, Y, Z to frame politics. So yeah, you're right. He's starting with this idea that um, history is made up of difference. And, and it's that acknowledgement, I argue, that allows us to position him within different debates uh, in the 18th century and early 19th century. Before we jump into how history could be used positively, um, one, another theme that you return to on a number of occasions, a number of occasions is the utilitarians' criticism of would you call them nationalist histories? Is that, poss is that possibly the wrong word? But uh, myths about uh, national origins. Uh, could you say a little bit about their pushback against national histories? I can, yeah. So at the beginning, by the get to the time you get to say, I don't know, the 1820s, 1830s, um, there, is, there is this, it's not an absolute consensus, I'm, I'm largely simplifying, but the scholarship tends to argue that by the time you get to the 1820s, 1830s, people are interested in history to the extent that it allows them to explain the present. So if you think about a whole, the whole series of changes that are going on from demographic change, industrialization, quite serious political changes, both abroad and at home, um, all of these things combine to produce an anxiety about you know, what England is or what the United Kingdom might be. And in order to answer that question, you look at history. The problem, and I'm not saying that that didn't happen, it clearly did happen, but for some of the reasons we've been talking about, the utilitarians were really skeptical of this. Because if we, if we could try and connect it to what we were just saying before, the, this previous question about Bentham and starting from this perspective of historical difference, if you're going to say at some point that, well, in thinking about politics and thinking about politics normatively, right, this is what we should do, this is what we should have, um, history has to factor into that somehow, then there's something quite dangerous about looking just at national history. Because surely any good philosophical scheme, this is them arguing it, and I'm kind of paraphrasing, any good philosophical scheme must be able to separate out um, historical accidents from general things. So universals in particular, it's, it's a problem as old as the hills. Um, so if you just look at, say, for example, the constitutional history of England from, I don't know, the mid 17th century onwards, is that going to produce something that is philosophically useful in a larger, more general sense? Or are you just going to get more particularity? So John Stuart Mill in particular in the 1840s spends a lot of time thinking about this. If history is going to be useful, how can we extract out of it things that are yet generally applicable? And how do we yeah, sift out the things that are particular? So in other words, they're making this obvious point, which is that if you just look at English history, you're not going to learn anything philosophically general about human nature or how particular forces might operate in different circumstances. So there is this, I think, built-in skepticism towards national history. Um, and John Stuart Mill actually says in a really telling passage in I think it's considerations on representative government from 1861. He says that, yeah, look, if you're talking about national identity, what makes a people a people? A history can be a huge part of that, but it's not necessary. He says that it can be, but it doesn't have to be. So again, when I was thinking about this book and how to position it, it what became clear quite early on was that to the extent that they do engage in history, and they do quite seriously, they don't really fit in easily to this narrative that what they're really doing is trying to explain 
Englishness or discover Englishness or discover what made um, Britain's constitution unique. They're not interested in that. Because if you just go down that route, you're just going to get particularity. And because these are rigorous, they are rigorous philosophers, they want something more than that. Not just what happened at this date and you know, so on, but something more philosophically useful. But of course, these things are intention. By saying that, right, you know, history really is the stuff of difference. How do you get from there to a conception of history that allows you to, yeah, make broader claims about politics and morality? Well, can I ask you to answer your own question? That's exactly where I was hoping we'd go to. How does history then relate to political philosophy? There's a massive uh, uh, question there, but can you at least get us going on it? Yeah, it's, it's difficult. I think so. The, the, the easy answer would be to say that, okay, so going back to what I said earlier about, if you think about these thinkers as a group, they don't quite divide as you'd want them to divide. It's not just there's generation, there's you know, the older generation of Bentham and James Mill, and then there's John Stuart Mill and Grove. Uh, it doesn't quite map out like that. Now, there is certain academics have said that in, in thinking about this question, right, well, what is the relationship between history and politics? It's much easier to go with Bentham on this and George Grote on this because they are really, they, they neatly separate the two. So uh, lots and lots of evidence, um, explicit evidence, where, you know, when Bentham says, when Grote says, look, to explain history is not the same as doing philosophy. They're separate things. They might inform each other, but they are separate things. So for example, Bentham talks about expository jurisprudence versus sensorial jurisprudence. By this, he means that there are certain people who want to look at how laws have developed over time or you know, the historical origins of particular legal arrangements. That's one kind of activity, but it is a whole different activity to answer that quintessentially philosophical question, which is, is this good? Are these arrangements good? Are they maximizing happiness? So their answer, Bentham and Grotes, is really to separate the two. Um, but I think there is this lingering unease, particularly in George Grotes' work about how then politics does become relevant. There's a huge, there's quite a long story there, but I'll draw it back to John Stuart Mill again, because I think he's the thinker who really complicates this. So there's a, there again, there is this interpretation in the scholarship that John Stuart Mill in trying to figure out this question and trying to answer it more satisfactorily than that, well, these are two activities and um, that's that. He does try to bring them closer together in a system of logic from 1843. Um, so there's a really notorious book in that book six, in which he developed something called the inverse deductive historical method. I won't bore you with it, but he's really trying to answer this question. How can you bring, bring history and politics together without just trampling over historical difference, right? Because if this is our starting point, history is made up of difference, but you're trying to get to a place where it's philosophically useful, then that difference is gonna have to be removed at some point or abstracted out of the equation. So he struggles with this. Um, and certain critics say that his attempt to do this results in a bit of a confusion. So one of the things that I was really surprised at in researching and writing the book is that he comes to think about history on two levels. And he comes to think about them on two levels at the same time with the expectation that one won't explain the other or that they won't contradict each other. Level one is to say that, well, yeah, things are really relative. There are different national histories. There are things, for example, that are really particular to Eng uh, England's history, the, the Protestant Reformation, for example, that changed irrevocably the course of its history. So you can look at history in that way. 
why does a particular country, society or context look the way it does? In other words, historical relativism. But then you can use a different lens and look at history in this more philosophically general way, which he calls universal history. What is more or less common to all of these different national histories? And what does that tell us about the general trends of historical development? It's in that latter approach, right, this universal history approach, that Mill begins to see the possibilities for political science, for philosophy. If history is going to have any use whatsoever, it can't be that, you know, the, there was a reformation in England. What use is that if you live in France or if you live in the United States? If history is going to be useful, you have to look at it at such a, on such a scale and with such a perspective that those historical accidents, those particularities, are kind of factored out of the equation. But this results in, you know, it's really a difficult thing to wrap your head around because what John Stuartman is asking us to do is to think about history simultaneously in two different ways. One, which is really relative, different national histories are kind of like really different from each other. But at the same time, so not instead, it's not one or the other, at the same time to bear in mind a more universal story of history. And just to give you a couple of examples more concretely of what that might be, um, he borrows from Tocqueville the idea that we are gradually moving towards um, an equality of conditions. That's one such fact that, you know, on the whole, we are gradually moving towards some kind of equality of conditions. Um, so it's, that's the challenge, really, that they're presenting their readers. Can you think about history, not just in one way, but in multiple ways at once, with no expectation that one way would explain the other? Okay. Um, uh, this is possibly projecting from the Scottish Enlightenment forwards. Are we talking about sort of trajectories of civilizational development in which different stages of society require different forms of politics? Is that where the utilitarians end up? Yes and no. So if I there is certainly a way of reading them that would suggest exactly that, that if you can begin to see at what stage of, you know, a particular, yeah, so ascertaining, as you said, the stages of civilization, if you can begin to say, right, this society is at that stage of development, and this would require these sorts of laws. Um, and this is a debate I struggle with a lot um, when researching and writing the book, because something I didn't want to do, you know, I'm a historian, first and foremost, so I'm, I'm less interested in wading into debates about whether these are good ideas or bad ideas, whether they're successful or not um, in developing a historically informed philosophy. I'm just trying to gather them, understand their intentions and what they were trying to do um, by writing the things that they wrote. But this question of civilization is one that stayed with me for a number of years. Um, so I, there's something I always talk about with students is that we, we talk about it every year, about whether you can intellectually disconnect liberalism from imperialism or whether they are in some sense co-constitutive. There's a huge um, literature on this, of course. Um, and I suppose my book does intervene in this debate in a particular way. Um, again, not, not in the form at all of an apology or, or, or a defense, but just to say that the usual lines of attack or the usual ways of criticizing them on this issue of civilization are perhaps slightly misguided. I'll give you two examples. Um, James Mill wrote this multi-volume history of British India, um, published in 1817. Um, and it's quite a horrible book to read in a lot of ways because he says quite disparaging 
things about Indian society, despite never having been there. In fact, he defends at length to some of his critics the importance of not going there, because he says, well, if I go to India, I'm going to be tempted to conclude what my, you know, to conclude from what my eyes tell me. In other words, I'm, going to, I'm just going to be simply observing things. And simple observation, he says, doesn't tell you anything about how a society works and what you need to do to reform it. So whilst that book, for example, The History of British India, is a really difficult read because of its disparaging remarks, a lot of criticism, particularly, and these, this is good criticism, as I said, normatively, I agree with it, but a lot of the criticism of that book comes from this idea that he, despite being a historian, he's not really interested in history, right? He doesn't go to India, um, he doesn't speak um, any of the languages um, at all, doesn't feel like he needs to, whereas there are, other thinkers within the period, like William Jones and a whole group called loosely called Orientalists, who were interested in understanding Indian culture. He's not one of those people. But this can too quickly result in another, well, in the conclusion that the utilitarians didn't care about history, or that somehow his method wasn't, in his view, and this is the crucial difference, in his view, historical. So when he's confronted with this question, you've written about India and yet you've never been there you don't speak any of the languages and so on. He retorts with something quite significant, and I think it's this that I'm trying to, to unpack. Don't trust your eyes. Mere, what he calls like ocular reasoning, right? Just, just looking with your eyes, um, experiencing things, does not tell you anything that is particularly deep or philosophically useful. What we want as philosophers is something that is far better than mere observation, than mere perception. What we want is a full proper induction um, that allows us to make these conclusions about a particular society or civilization. And for that, you need to understand human nature. So going back to this idea that the central factor it is psychological, the fact that we are pain averse and with qualifications, pleasure seeking. And of course, that conception of human nature itself is informed by history. So the question then becomes, and this is a question that John Stuart Mill tries to answer later on unsuccessfully, is okay, so if we've got these two kinds of facts, right? One is a psychological fact about how human beings are biologically hardwired. Again, we're pain averse, in some sense, pleasure seeking. Um, we've got this, and then we've got the experiences of history. These are quite potentially disconnected from each other. How do you connect them? So John Stuart Mill begins to think about this. So he develops an abandoned science of ethology. So basically a science of national character in order to mediate between these really high generalizations, this is what human psychology looks like, and the really lowest generalizations, which will be made up of the facts of history. Um, so yes, yeah, so just to finish this point, John Stuart Mill, of course, in On Liberty, um, makes some very casually difficult remarks about India. And again, this has led to the same kind of um, attack, which is that he's not really interested in thinking about um, cultural difference, or historical diversity. What I've tried to show in the book is that this problem becomes more, not less profound by the fact that they did not see themselves as ignorant of history. It becomes harder to understand when we realize just the sheer extent to which they saw themselves as fully engaged in a historical enterprise. The problem becomes, I think maybe slightly, yeah, less scary if we could just conclude that, oh, well, the problem was they were just kind of historically ignorant. They weren't really interested in 
looking at cultures on their own terms. What I argue in the book is that they, they thought they were, and they thought that they had developed a philosophical method to do that. So when we're then thinking about this question, this larger question of civilization, how do we judge a civilization? How do we develop laws and institutions to progress civilization? This question becomes historically more acute and difficult, not less, because they saw themselves as historically minded um, thinkers. Fascinating. It's really, it's, yeah, it's really a heady stuff. Um, one of the, so I'm possibly going to drag it back down to, back down to the earth uh, with this following question. So, are they engaging with history as a storehouse of examples? Because one of the authors mentioned frequently is Francis Bacon. And one way that you might think about the Baconian inheritance, subsequent centuries, is the viewing of history as, you know, a storehouse of examples. You then collate together, you aggregate as many things together, and then you, from there, um, induce a, um, a lesson about human nature, about how societies work. Is that how they're engaging with history? It's another really good question because... Uh, this this was established before I wrote the book, so this isn't a new discovery, but I think the extent of it was, was deeper than I imagined. What's quite interesting is, you know, as I say in the book, a lot of the sort of neat intellectual divisions that we as historians or political theorists, whatever, like to make um, were quite messy. So, for example, the debate I talked about earlier in the 1810s and 1820s, so this is occurring in the, in the context of political reform, so you've got opponents of utilitarianism saying that their proposals for political reform are based on nothing. They're based on abstractions from human nature, not concrete historical experience. So again, the, the key figure here is, is Thomas Macaulay, who really successfully criticizes James Mill. He, I think he wins the debate. I don't think there's much of a, um, I don't think many people would disagree with that. But what's interesting is that in these debates in the 1810s, 20s, and, and the early 1830s, the debates between, say, for example, the utilitarians and the Whigs, or particular kinds of Whigs, you can call them moderate Whigs or philosophical Whigs, who themselves have connections to the late Scottish Enlightenment, to Dougal Stewart at Edinburgh, they are fighting, in a sense, over the intellectual legacy of Francis Bacon. So for both um, sides of this debate, Francis Bacon is the intellectual hero, as somebody who develops an inductive method of politics that works more or less in the way that you described. But the, there is a huge disagreement over what that legacy exactly is and what it means to use induction when thinking historically right, about politics. So James Mill has a lot of this. So I went and looked at his commonplace books, which are basically journals or scrap journals where he pastes quotations from other thinkers. So D'Alembert is quite big in there, uh, you know, all the, all the figures you might expect. And he writes little notes to himself. Um, these are quite revealing because the gloves are off in commonplace books. You can be as rude as you like um, because people aren't necessarily going to see them. And he really attacks people who think that when we're talking about Francis Bacon, and as you said, history is a storehouse of facts, that we proceed enumeratively. Because he says this is just kind of like a mechanical, thoughtless, silly way of thinking about history, right? You're just collecting fact after fact after fact after fact. The only thing that's going to tell you that's really going to be useful is right okay so you can collect as many examples as you like you can have an almost infinite number of examples of how political you know statesmen or politicians whoever responded to a particular kind of problem you could, you could go on forever at some point you're going to have to make a judgment about whether that course of action 
should be repeated and how it's going to be adapted. And this is his point, really, is that we're already now in a slightly different space where we're not just drawing on particulars anymore. We're starting to make a philosophical judgment about their utility. So he says that, okay, at some point, if we're thinking seriously about this, we are crossing a line between just, as it were, gathering stuff from history in this storehouse of experience and then deciding whether or not we're going to act on it. And it's that moving into the deciding whether or not we're going to act. This is what makes the, the task of legislation, the task of politics, the task of morality philosophical. How should I decide whether to emulate the past or not? He says this can only come down to utility. Bentham would say the same thing. In other words, if I'm thinking, right, okay, this happened, I don't know, 100 years ago. This, you know, I was thinking about this in a different context when people were talking during COVID-19 about drawing analogies with previous um, pandemics and so on and public um, response, uh, you know, responses to it. At some point, you're going to have to make a decision about whether or not you want to draw on the past. And that decision can only ever be philosophical. And he says, well, when we're making such, such a decision, what are we doing? And he says, for any utilitarian, it's always going to boil down to maximizing utility. So trying to do something that will maximize um, pleasure, or, or at the very least, if we can't do that, minimize pain. So yes, in a sense, history does provide you with this storehouse. But there's a much deeper battle going on over the legacy of Francis Bacon, what it means to proceed inductively in politics. So last point on this. Um, if you think about how science itself might evolve, and this is something that James Mill spends a lot of time thinking about, and also John Stuart Mill. James Mill has, has this notorious line. He says, you know, I think that one day human nature is going to be as plain as the road from Charing Cross to St. Paul's. It's more or less the quote. He's been much maligned for this because it sounds remarkably um, arrogant, um, you know, naive. But what he's really getting at is that induction is always the first step of scientific understanding. So just gathering facts as much as you can. But he says that over time, what should happen is that once you've inductively gathered information to, I don't know, warrant some kind of claim about the world, that claim can then serve as the basis for deduction. So you begin with induction, but what a really scientific theory of anything will always end up being deductive. But history is a huge part of that process. And this is where I think some of their readers have gone, not, not wrong, but they've perhaps just maybe put the emphasis in the wrong place. History is important to this but they clearly want to arrive at something that is more um, recognisably deductive. Can you explain that a little bit more about the, the deductive stage of what you're talking about, please? Yeah, so it, it, again, it depends on who you're thinking about. And here I, I really am grouping. It's interesting because um, obviously John Stuart Mill, it's well known that he, in the 1820s, has something you know, that we recognise today as um, something of a breakdown. Um, and he moves away temporarily from... The utilitarianism of his, of his youth and he starts reading romantic writers and so on but by the 18 i'd say by the late 1830s early 1840s he's not completely reconciled at all to what his father had written and, and argued but he's fairly reconciled towards it certainly more so than i think many would tend to admit and i think that reconciliation is about the, the question you just asked which is that how should we think about the relationship between human nature, which is the basis for deduction, um, and history, the things that are going to help us, you know, understand uh, the tendencies of things. That's a phrase that John Stuart Mill um, uses. So one way it might work would be like this: um, you know, you inductively gather information, 
um, and this warrants a certain conclusion. So say, I don't know, I'm not very good at examples, but um, John Stuart Mill might say the following. Okay, so imagine you go to a certain country and you have a really bad experience in that country for whatever reason. So every person you meet is horrible to you. Um, and let's say you're there for six months. So you're there for six months. You've got this pretty overwhelming impression that people are horrible to you. So you might begin to conclude, right, um, are these people horrible? Are these people from this country horrible? Now, of course, there are dangers here, right? Because if we just stop there with this kind of inductive, very enumerative inductive process, well, there are all sorts of reasons why that could be the case. It could be because the country is in turmoil, um, something's happened, because I am behaving in a way that doesn't respect their kind of cultural norms or whatever. Um, in other words, there may be a very good reason why every person I've encountered isn't being very nice to me. So you need to verify it. What might we verify it against? Well, we verify it against human nature, first of all, as in, is this roughly compatible with what we know of people? And if it isn't, why might that not be the case? Now, of course, even in doing that, that's a pretty rough, crude calculation. And what John Stuart Mill wants us to do is to find, is to, in that process of verification, to verify it against different, as it were, um, disciplines or, or kinds of empirical laws. So, for example, he has this whole scheme, right? So, for example, you could, I mentioned earlier, he developed this um, abandoned science of ethology uh, in which he's trying to figure out the empirical laws of national character formation. It's a really difficult thing to do, but you see roughly what it is he's trying to get at. He's trying to get us to think about, right, look, if we just think about, right, I've, I've got all of these experiences and these experiences lead me to believe X, Y, Z about a certain group of people or institution or whatever, that cannot be the end of my reasoning. I have to then verify this against something. The question then becomes what you verify it against because human nature is kind of too uh, arguably detached, too abstract to be really helpful. So you have to find what Francis Bacon would have called axiomata media, so middling level principles against which you verify your experience. He never really succeeds in doing this, but it's more interesting for me that that's the direction he wanted to take. And again, as I mentioned earlier, when he then comes to write his more famous works of political theory, there was no shortage of people in his own time and subsequently saying, hold on a minute, you wrote this book in 1843 saying that we've got to be really careful here about the sorts of conclusions we draw. Um, and as I said, verifying it against different kinds of laws and different kinds of, of knowledges. But you don't do that yourself. Your use of history and on liberty, for example, is really slapdash, it's casual, it's kind of crude and vulgar, all the things that you denounce. So again, there's this larger question about whether they're successful in doing this. Um, but what, yeah, what I'm interested in really is, is, is beginning to sort of break down slightly this distinction between induction and deduction and seeing how, um, in their thought anyway, they overlap and connect. Brilliant. I suppose, oh no, definitely, yeah, no, great. I think we're kind of coming towards the end. I still have a big theme here that maybe we can condense condense down that's <laughs> the second half of the book i apologize but we can condense it down a bit which is uh if you're well it's primarily john stuart mill right uh but if you are a classical utilitarian how should history be written itself how should uh, a historian go about doing their job if they're going to do it in a way that then can be useful uh for a political theorist how should history history be composed that's an excellent question to end. I'll try and be really quick because it allows me to bring up the, the one thing we haven't really talked about, which is the relationship of these thinkers to 
historicism. Um, so maybe a good way into it is this. So I've just explained a little bit about how Mill imagines we might use history and not, not to do so in a naive way, right? So I'm just collecting experiences that suggest kind of slightly false conclusions about things. Um, but towards the end of his life, for example, which is quite interesting, he begins to worry that history has almost become too important to political theorists. So he says, whereas at one time, there was a tendency to be, to be perhaps too abstract about things, to resort to human nature when thinking about uh, politics, now we've kind of almost done the, gone to the opposite extreme. And that we're thinking historically about everything at the expense of philosophical rigor and thinking philosophically about our institutions. How does this factor into well, how, how should historians write and how should political theorists draw on history? It's a good question. Um, he's clear that, you know, first and foremost, a historian has to be a good historian. So here he really is drawing on the legacies of German historicism um, in, you know, historians should be very, very discriminating with their sources. They should be scrupulous. They should be as far as they can be impartial. All of these kind of historiographical virtues that we're familiar with. That is always step one. Step one has to be rooted in particularity and difference in, in the, yeah, the particular contexts um, of history. But of course, as I said earlier, um, that's not gonna get you very far when you're trying to think in terms of political theory or philosophy. So this, I suppose, alights on uh, may really the, the central argument of the book, which is that, you know, I argue that the utilitarians were deeply interested in developments of the developments of historicism for the following reason. People like uh, Peter Ryle, uh, Frederick Beiser have argued that German historicism is itself a really confused intellectual tradition. Or maybe if not confused, then, then, then has a fundamental tension at the heart of it. Between, on the one hand, what we've just been talking about, being a good historian, doing, um, doing the hard graft, you know, going into the archives, um, discriminating, um, you know, between good and bad evidence, um, trying to be quite sober in your judgments, not import too many values from the present, try and see things the historical way, all of those things. That's one strand of German historicism. Another, um, Ryle and Beiser argue, is the idea that the past could be used to suggest laws or at least empirical trends of development so that you know, we can get a rough sense of how history might unravel or, or, or develop in the future. Of course, these two things look pretty strange when sat side by side, but, but John Stuart Mill for me, actually the utilitarians kind of encapsulate for me precisely this tension. They kind of wanted to have their cake and eat it. We should be good historians who take the past seriously on its own terms. And Mill writes about this at length in the 1840s. But if history is going to be really useful, we can't get stuck in the weeds of historical difference because we're not gonna produce anything that is more generally applicable. So really the note on which I- So I've mentioned, does that then position the historical critic, the political philosopher as the person who extracts the relevant message. So the historian can write a very antiquarian, if you like, a very serious work of scholarship, very erudite, doing all of the things you've just described. Yeah. But the de-weeding process is the process done by the by John Stuart Mill. Is that how that is that the, the, you know, the allocation of labor, the division of labor there? That's right. And I think this is where 
for example, George Grote and John Stuart Mill begin to part company. George Grote, who is, by the way, a, more of a, a historian in, in the sense that we would recognize him, right? He, he is um, very exegetical. He develops, you know, he, he draws on all these um, sort of innovations within German hermeneutics and philology and source criticism um, to try and produce a really critical history of Greece, for example. He doesn't really like the direction that John Stuart Mill goes in. Kind of for this reason, he you know he has this clear division between you know, you're a historian, as you said, um, uh, you're, you're, you have a particular job, which is to try and get the past, to, to, to represent the past accurately. And you're right, in, but for, in order for the, the past to be useful, you're, you're, you're operating in different territory. John Stuart Mill was more comfortable going into that territory. George Grote criticized Mill for this. He criticized August Comte, who is a huge influence on Mill for the same reason. Because as soon as you step into that space, moving from the past as it really was to philosophical uses of the past, you've kind of lost the past along the way. So he says that, you know, for example, in August Comte, this great posit positivist thinker, that the founder of arguably of modern sociology, a huge influence on Mill, when he starts to use history and his political thinking, it becomes ethereal, abstract, and really removed from the concrete real experiences of history in such a way that it's not really history anymore. So this is the, this is the central tension. And, and, and my argument is that it is that tension that makes the utilitarians deeply involved in this ongoing debate um, over the use of history. And, and that means that they can be situated within the intellectual tradition of historicism. So I think some people want to say, hold on, there's this huge contradiction here. Did they prefer one approach over the other, just being a good historian or being philosophical about the past? But the answer is both at the same time. And it is that tension, I think, that allows us to situate them more accurately within the intellectual history of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Sounds like a perfect uh, answer upon which to end, unless you have anything else you'd like to add. No, uh, just to say thank you very much for having me and for, for taking the time to read the book. Not it's, at all, uh, it's been a real pleasure. But what uh, we usually end with asking uh, our guest, what you are you working on next? Now, my spies tell me you may have left the world of HPT and uh, might be doing different things now. But yeah, what, what are you doing in the future? I'm, I'm now working on um, temporality and the philosophy of history within the Anthropocene. Um, so my, my interests really are still with the philosophy of history, um, but I'm looking at more contemporary things in the context of the ecological crisis. So yeah, a bit of a change of scene for me. I've, I've left the 19th century behind for a bit and I'm, I'm, I'm in the present day, which is scary. Because people can argue back at you. Everyone in the 19th century remains blissfully dead. But, um, yes, that is one of the benefits. All yeah. right. Um, Dr. Callum Burrell, thank you very much indeed for your time. This was fascinating. Great. Thanks, Robin.